Hello and welcome to Sound Strategic, the podcast of the International Institute for Strategic Studies. I'm Maya Nowens. In today's episode, we'll examine the recent developments on the Korean Peninsula, looking in particular at geopolitical tensions facing the Republic of Korea's Moon Jae-in presidency in his last two years in office. Korea's relations with Japan remain strained, and to the north, the Democratic People's Republic of Korea has continued its military buildup despite diplomatic efforts by Moon to improve inter-Korean relations. South Korea's own defense plans can include procurement of indigenous capabilities and maintaining a qualitative edge over Pyongyang. Despite a tumultuous relationship between the U.S. and Korea under the Trump administration, the established alliance between the two countries remains a significant part of defense strategy. Balancing relations with the U.S. and regional neighbors, however, presents a significant challenge to President Moon and will require a coherent national strategy. Joining me today to discuss some of these issues are two of my colleagues from the IISS's offices in Singapore and London. Dr. Ewan Graham is the IISS Shangri-La Dialogue Senior Fellow for Asia-Pacific Security. Ewan's expertise includes the geopolitics of the Korean Peninsula in Japan, and he's responsible for furthering research within the IISS on defense and security in Northeast Asia and the Western Pacific. Joseph Dempsey is Research Associate for Defense and Military Analysis and contributes to the IISS's military balance. His research focus is on defense and military equipment, with a particular expertise in North Korea's missile and submarine developments. Welcome, Joe and Ewan. Hi, Mayor. Nice to be with you. Thank you. Same here. Um, Ewan, maybe I could start with you. How will both South Korea's and North Korea's relationship with the U.S. be different under a Biden presidency, perhaps starting with the DPRK? As vice president, Biden in 2020 called Kim Jong-un a thug during his presidential election campaign and declared that his approach to North Korea would step away from that of former President Trump, which Biden had labeled as cozying up to dictators. Uh, The DPRK, of course, in turn has branded Biden a rabid dog. But insults aside, what do you think is in store for this relationship? On the North Korean side, this is not a strategic surprise. I mean, they will have planned for uh, President Biden's uh, election, and uh, uh, they will have a strategy for that. Uh, And historically speaking, what has always happened when there's a change of administration uh, there is a test of uh, of resolve, uh, a flag waving, if you like, from the North Korean side in the form of uh, uh, some provocation or other. That's what's usually happened. We're in a bit of a different situation now. Um, COVID has affected North Korea particularly badly, uh, including in an economic sense. So that might change the calculus on the North Korean side in terms of their uh, timelines and their willingness to engage the United States it won't change them on their bottom bottom line uh, of uh, perfecting the nuclear deterrent, which um, will continue as it has uh, under all U.S. administrations. Perhaps turning to South Korea next, um, the U.S.-ROK alliance remains a cornerstone of South Korea's defense strategy. But how has this relationship um, changed under former President Trump's administration? Well, this is an alliance uh, badly in need of repair. Uh, Amongst all of the U.S. alliances in the Western Pacific, uh, it's perhaps with the exception of the Philippines in the worst shape. Uh, But it it is also the second most important alliance for hosting U.S. forces, all 28,500 of them in uh, Northeast Asia. 
So it's a significant part of the geostrategic and geopolitical peace for the United States. Uh, having said that, um, the uh, immediate trigger point uh, in the, under the Trump administration was uh, financial payments from the South. The Trump administration had asked for a, at least a 50% hike uh, in terms of what South Korea was willing to provide uh, for the upkeep of U.S. forces on the peninsula. Uh, South Korea said it was prepared to pay no more than um, 13% on what it currently provides. And that was the standoff that was left at the end of the Trump administration. The Trump administration had even threatened to pull U.S. troops off the peninsula. So uh, on the one hand, treating its ally rather like a protection racket, you could say, while President Trump made no secret of the fact that he was more enamored um, of Kim Jong-un than he was of Moon Jae-in. He literally said uh, he was in love with him. So uh, it's it's been a bit of a roller coaster, um, and uh, uh, that will need to be reset. President uh, Biden, before he was elected, actually uh, wrote a, a uh, an op-ed for Yonhap, which is the South Korean state uh, media agency. And he said uh, all of the right things, I think, to assuage uh, South Korean um, concerns, saying that the United States would support South Korea, that they wanted to um, pursue denuclearization of the North. They were in favor of unification, um, all of the right messages. But none of that changes the fact that there is a serious risk of strategic divergence in national security interests between the United States and South Korea, which in my view really uh, is of the scale that requires uh, a bottom-up review uh, of the U.S. ROK alliance. And of course, contributing to this is the ongoing strained relationship between um, President Moon Jae-in uh, from South Korea and Japan's Prime Minister Suga Yoshihide. In 2015, Vice President Biden was able to play a diplomatic role in somewhat mending ties that were strained then between Seoul and Tokyo. And Biden's administration officials have already, of course, stated that the stable trilateral relationship between the ROK, Japan and the U.S. is fundamental to regional peace and security. So how will Biden approach U.S. relations between South Korea and Japan in trilateral terms, do you think? Well, as you said, Mayor, uh, President Biden has has been there and, and done that once already under uh, the previous uh, Obama administration. And I think um, that might actually make him cautious about investing his political capital in repairing this relationship, notwithstanding the fact that it's a major crack within the U.S. bilateral alliance system uh, in the Western Pacific. Uh, but I think he will also have a realistic view of, of U.S. influence on this. We've had a very recent indication of the problems uh, in the form of the new South Korean defense white paper released just yesterday, uh, in which uh, Japan was no longer termed a defense partner of Korea. So that's, a, uh, I think, a, a rather ominous straw in the wind of, of Korea's willingness to, to repair that um, relationship. Uh, so I, the... The absence of uh, trilateral effective coordination between the US, Korea and Japan will obviously cost the United States in the broader scheme of things, uh, which uh, I think is the obvious point to bring in China into the conversation. That's another structural impediment in the alliance because Moon Jae-in has uh, very deliberately hedged South Korea's uh, bets on, uh, 
on China. Uh, and um, that will, uh, I think, be a, a source of increasing tension for the United States, which, uh, if there is a contingency in Taiwan, cannot depend on South Korea agreeing to the use of U.S. forces that are based there. So that's obviously one concern. The United States wants to maximize the flexibility of its alliances in that part of the world. And from the Korean side of the equation, what uh, Moon Jae-in wants is uh, more autonomy within the alliance. Uh, and to that end, there is a long-standing ambition to uh, transfer operational control from the current US-led Combined Forces Command to um, Korean control over the Korean Armed Forces. I, that will be tempered by realism in the, in the hot wind of a, a pandemic, uh, Fiscally, there's going to be very limited room for South Korea to do the kinds of things that it needs to do to upgrade its capabilities, including strategic uh, uh, ISR capabilities, which currently are, are absent from their, their order of battle. That's a fantastic point to transfer to Joe. Um, Joe, can you talk us through some of South Korea's recent defense uh, capability developments? Um, well, I mean, it's a long-standing, as you mentioned, it's a long-standing ambition to become more autonomous in terms of their own defence than relying on US forces. Uh, so we've seen them develop their defence capabilities, their domestic defence capabilities, quite considerably uh, over the last generation. So in certain key areas like armoured vehicles, uh, they've made quite considerable progress, um, including some export success as well. Um, also, when you look at things like their, their aircraft manufacturing capability, they've had some ex export success as well with the, the, the T-50 or the K-50, which is a the standard training variant. Um, but they are still lacking some areas, of course, some of the, the, you know, the, the high um, capability stuff. For example, they're still reliant on F-35s from the US, the Joint Strike Fighter, uh, for their key frontline aircraft. Uh, in other areas, for example, like naval, they've obviously got a lot of progress. Their submarine um, capacity particularly has developed quite dramatically, I would say, over the last 10, 20 years, um, you know, moving from relying on German exports to license building German submarines to jumping from there most recently uh, with the KS-3 series, which is a domestically built submarine program. And also they're, they're looking at, you know, UAV programs as well, both domestically uh, and externally. Um, but one area that, that despite the, the big increase in their own domestic capability, is there is some criticism. Um, they are still reliant to varying degrees on um, external resources and systems. Uh, I think the naval capabilities are particularly uh, interesting on the South Korean development side. It, it wasn't given any further update in the latest defense white paper, but uh, last August there was um, an indication of uh, plans to construct a light aircraft carrier along the lines that Japan has done. Uh, and that, I think, is an interesting signal that uh, South Korea, although it is still uh, an ally of the common ally of the United States, is also benchmarking Japan's capabilities in terms of uh, what it does. I think in the missile field, it's well ahead of Japan or even Australia, for that matter, in terms of its own indigenous development of ballistic missiles. That puts it on an autonomous course that uh, other allies, I think, uh, may even look to emulate in, in future. Uh, but the question to be asked around this is whether there's a strategy that's driving it. That's less clear. Uh, I think it, it seems more like capability uh, is being rolled out uh, without, with more ambiguity around what, what is the concept uh, that's, that's really driving that. Uh, other than the 
the perpetual concern with North Korea, but North Korea is no longer officially referred to as an enemy in the latest uh, defense white paper, which begs the question, uh, if not North Korea, then whom? Um, Korea sits in a difficult neighborhood. It has China uh, to its left flank and Japan to its right. And I think there is a question long term around whether this is uh, a hedge of rather more uh, consequential uh, importance. I mean, speaking then about uh, North Korea's own um, military development, Joe, can you talk us through some of the advancements that you've seen in North Korea's own uh, submarine-launched ballistic missile development program? Sure. Um, Well, the submarine-launched ballistic missile program has been ongoing for quite some time now uh, and certainly been outwardly testing since 2014. We've seen lots of different um, variations of the, the PK series, the Pukusong series. Um, what we see now, though, is so they tested PK1, um, which is a submarine launch ver- version initially. PK2 is a, a la- land based variant of that, which may use a different motor. But there's still some debate about the sizing on that one. Uh, we then saw a PK3, uh, which is a much larger uh, missile. Um, launched from a test bar- barge in uh, end of 2019. And then uh, we have no confirmed tests since then. There may potentially be some injection tests since then, which we've not seen reported. Uh, but then we see two new missiles, which appear to be based uh, on the PK-3, so the PK-4 and the PK-5. We saw the PK-4 on the October parade and the PK-5 again uh, in the recent January parade. Now, when you look at the PK-3, 4, 5, they are largely the same. There's a few external differences. Uh, but the question is, you know, are these just slight design variations in a mock-up? Does this represent new design? But the fact that, you know, t- clearly displaying different designs, it means they probably haven't set, like, settled on a, a final design. And what we'll actually see coming out of it and what the next test will be of uh, is very much unclear. Um, can I just ask... We hear from North Korea um, often statements that claim that its weapons uh, are, for example, the most powerful weapon in its arsenal or in the world yet um, when it comes to its new ballistic missiles. To what extent do we take these statements seriously? Well, I think they, they referred to the at the parade, the most recent parade, they referred to the, um, the SLBM as the world's most powerful missile. Now, Obviously, we don't know the exact capabilities of this. We don't know how real that particular missile is in terms of its capabilities or its operational development. It is, as far as we know, untested in that form. Um, so, yes, there's a little bit of certainly hype and propaganda there, of course. But underlining it is the fact they are developing a submarine launched ballistic mis- missile capability. That is quite clear. Um, and obviously, the intention is to be nuclear uh, capable. So... Given the progress they have made previously in the last few years and on their land-based missile systems, it is still a, a worrying development, um, and their ambition is very clear. And I think particularly their link to that, uh, or recessive link to that, is the development of a nuclear submarine program in terms of powered as well, which they also announced at the recent Congress. Uh, if I could just chip into that too, if they have made advances in solid fuel technology, that's also uh, a significant uh, potential game changer because it reduces alert time for any uh, missile that would have to be uh, fielded. And, and I think this asks the, the bigger question whether North Korea uh, really needs to have a fully 100% rolled out capability just to create enough doubt in the minds of US strategic planners 
that it potentially poses a direct threat. Um, this is, I think, a, a higher level question that, that is asked by these demonstrations of, of capability setting the hype aside. Uh, it, it, it asks a fundamental question of the credibility of the US extended deterrent guarantee to South Korea, because if North Korea can create enough doubt in US planners' minds that it can hit the United States continent directly, then that is going to change the political calculation in any crisis. Uh, yeah, I quite agree with you in, your statement. It's the new kind of medium, intermediate and long range systems we've seen um, showcased and some of which have been tested since 2017, particularly. They're still largely untested and undeveloped. So some of these haven't been tested at all. Uh, some of these only had a couple of tests, but not necessarily full range tests. So the lofted trajectory tests. And, you know, particularly when we look at nuclear capability, there are still a lot of questions that haven't uh, are still left unanswered for and a lot of capabilities um, for developing nuclear deterrent or capable nuclear deterrent. That is still a question mark. It's still a gray area of this. Uh, but as Ewan says, if they, um, they raise that element of doubt between um, particularly the US and the US planners, um, then it's an, they've achieved their purpose to a degree. The, the bit that puzzles me personally is why they have continued the ongoing development of new systems rather than um, continue to develop and deploy, a mass produce and deploy um, at least an initial emerged capability. So, for example, you know, why have we for the Harrison 14, their first tested ICBM, why haven't we seen that deployed on mass? And it um, instead of developing the slightly longer range 15 and then the new follow-on, which uh, we, we dub it Harrison 16, but we don't know if it's official title, which is the much bigger missile they displayed in October. What, one possible explanation of that, Joe, is that um, they are they are rolling up to the threshold of, uh, of the capability, uh, but they're allowing themselves deliberate redundancy so that some could be traded away as part of a negotiation with the United States. That's a good point, Jon, yeah. Can I just move on to North Korea's economy? I mean, it's taken a big hit after China closed its borders to contain COVID-19. And we've seen trade decrease by 80% between the two countries. Um, North Korea seems to also have taken a big hit by devastating floods. um, And combined with tough sanctions, their economy is in a fragile state. Um, So to what extent do you think um, will this make North Korea more willing to engage in diplomacy with the United States? North Korea remains a, a black box in terms of its strategic decision-making. But I think the, the situation that you've outlined, Mayor, brings domestic instability back into the frame, at least as a, an outlier risk. Uh, 80% of China's trade means 80% of 90% of DPRK's imports in total. So uh, it's, a, it's a huge hit for them to absorb. What makes that politically interesting is that Kim Jong-un has actually been economically successful up to this point in building up a, a comprador class uh, around him that have heightened expectations. So now that they are suddenly cut off from their, uh, from their supplies of luxury uh, and even staple goods, uh, how secure is their loyalty? Uh, that's an untested proposition uh, and one that I think we, we need to keep at least a background eye on uh, in terms of what could happen in 2021. Um, now, many analysts have nailed their uh, their um, 
reputations to the mast of, of North Korean collapse. I'm not going to go there. I'm just going to say that uh, domestic instability is something that we, we, we do need to uh, bring back into the frame. But the glass half full of that economic fragility is that it, it, it may uh, prompt Kim Jong-un to uh, look again at offers of aid from the South uh, and from the United States in ways that might actually play diplomatically to the Biden administration if they are willing to uh, open a dialogue uh, uh, with full eyes open with the fact that North Korea is not going to voluntarily denuclearize, but it may at least uh, be willing to enter into a, a, a form of arms control dialogue that parks the North Korean issue in a way that allows the United States to focus on the bigger picture, which is China. A question then to my, that comes to my mind is how all of this sits both South Korea's military development as well as North Korea's military development with the Moon administration's more conciliatory diplomatic approach towards the North. Where does all of this leave Moon Jae-in for 2021? It's a running contradiction in South Korea's approach that they are continuing to upgrade their defense capability at the same time that uh, most of their dip diplomatic energy day in and day out goes on improving inter-Korean relations to the extent of, of uh, removing references to uh, North Korea as an enemy state within the, the, the defense uh, white paper. I think this paper's over some significant uh, cracks. Uh, when there is a, a, an election next year, if there's a return to a conservative South Korean president, we may well see uh, uh, hostility to North Korea uh, reemerge. South Korea is a, a very divided polity, and um, there is a good deal of suspicion towards Moon Jae-in's uh, policies within his own country. And within the United States, of course, that um, it opens up the potential for a, a disjuncture between uh, a conservative administration uh, in South Korea and a Democrat one in, in the United States. And that's it's like the old curse of U.S.-South Korea relations. Uh, there is, it's very rare that you have an alignment. So there is a window now for Biden in which to act, uh, both in the North uh, because of the economic difficulties that Kim Jong-un is suffering, but also in the South. They are, although rather different in their strategic goals, both left of center administrations. Uh, so it may be that uh, they can repair the alliance, do a quick deal on the uh, financial support measures, wait until there's an election, then open up a, a root and branch uh, review of the US ROK alliance with a, a new president in South Korea. Uh, and in the meantime, hope that things uh, fall their way. But uh, as I said, I, North Korea is not going to be the number one priority of the Biden administration uh, in East Asia. It, it's clearly China that's the bigger game. And therefore, I think... Uh, a pragmatism will will rule the day. Uh, I think what uh, what the United States is looking for basically is is a, a, an absence of crisis uh, along the lines that that characterised the first year of Donald Trump's presidency when there was a barrage of testing from North Korea uh, and very shrill rhetoric on both sides and a genuine elevation of uh, of crisis tensions. I think those lessons hopefully have been absorbed uh, on the uh, on the American side. Uh, we'll wait to see what North Korea makes of it.
And you and you've mentioned China a number of times now. Can I just ask you quickly as a last question on this subject? What does China, how does China view the current situation and the recent developments on the Korean Peninsula? Do these work to its favor or to its detriment? Well, another characteristic uh, feature of an incoming U.S. administration is normally they say they want to work with China to help them get a solution on North Korea. That's been noticeably absent this, this time. That, I think, speaks to the deterioration in strategic trust between Washington and Beijing. This time, the focus seems to be much more squarely on repairing alliances and putting alliances first. So we've seen that in the uh, the chronology of phone calls that have come out from President Biden uh, to uh, his Pacific allies first, and Beijing has still not been contacted. That, I think, speaks volumes. But from the Chinese side, uh, I, I think that uh, uh, probably also makes them double down on, on their only formal alliance, which is uh, North Korea. Uh, better the devil you know, in some ways. North Korea serves uh, China's broader strategic purpose of undermining the credibility of the U.S. alliance system. Uh, it's difficult to control. There's no love lost between North Korea and China in the same way there's no love lost between South Korea and China, but they're both neighbors, uh, and they will have to make their accommodations on that basis with uh, a, a, a power of, of China's size uh, and um, uh, and strategic ambitions. Uh, let's see whether uh, Kim Jong-un does another visit to uh, Beijing after the pandemic situation eases. I think for the moment, because of the pandemic, uh, North Korea is going to remain uh, in a, um, a, a, a lockdown um, mode that uh, w w will uh, weigh against that. Uh, but North Korea has very few other uh, options. Uh, its only way of evading U.S. sanctions has been reliance on China. And I think in the end, China will, um, nothing re will really change in this. China will be prepared to bail North Korea out if it feels that it's becoming uh, a strategic uh, liability. Uh, and that's the calculation that North Korea has, uh, has used in the past to uh, perfection. So a lot to watch out for in 2021 then. One last question for Joe. If there's one thing that you're watching out for in 2021 with regards to military developments in North Korea, potentially even South Korea, what would those be? Well, I'm probably slightly biased because I'm interested in ballistic missiles and submarines. So I will be looking for a new ballistic missile submarine. Um, we've seen one apparently under construction of Simpo shipyard, which we, we uh, North Korean media showed us. They didn't describe it as an SLBM uh, launcher. Uh, but it's not widely assessed to. We saw that in July 2019. It was. We haven't seen anything since then. We believe it's in there in an assembly yard. So we're looking for seeing. Well, sorry, I say looking forward to. Personally, as a research interest, I'm looking forward to seeing more of that and finding out more about it. It's believed to be based on a Romeo class, which is a, um, a Soviet design but built from Chinese kits um, up to the 90s. Um, however, you know, there's a lot of speculation and reporting that there's other stuff under the works in North Korea, uh, particularly in regards to submarines. So there's this talk of even bigger submarines, um, which are believed to link to the SLBM program. That causes new issues about, you know, how viable um, North Korea is at building larger submarines. They don't have much experience in it. And there's other capabilities associated, you know, with larger submarines, not just um, to be able to launch SLBMs, but things like, you know, the propulsion system and things like the sensors. And, you know, we have to care about what we assume they will use that for, uh, particularly 
compared to other contemporaries. Um, I think one of the other key things is, you know, where they're going to go on the nuclear propulsion, uh, which is a claim they made to develop it. Um, there's a lot of technical challenges in that, of course. Uh, and again, the, the question is, how long will that be? And it could be, it's, you know, in terms of actually developing capability, it's years, if not decades away. And that's true for a lot of nations that have already gone that route. It's not just saying North Korea can't do it. Um, if you just look at the history, particularly recent history with India and, you know, um, their neighbor China, look at their road to producing um, an SSBN. So there's lots of things typically going on submarine world that would be interesting. In terms of the land-based ballistic missile systems, you know, they're still developing short-range systems. They have done some recent tests in the last couple of years on that. Um, but the question is, you know, will their next um, longer-range system, so either the SLBM launch or potentially, you know, an ICBM uh, test as well. Um, there's lots of stuff they've seen shown us, um, but largely it's untested. So, you know, their timeline in development um, is their own. <laughs> How much is related to, you know, not wanting to stoke tensions with their neighbours and, and the US uh, is a calculation. But of course, they may not feel the need to test it as, say, the Western contemporaries would on the same systems. The pathway towards deployment uh, and their own confidence in the system and their threshold will be different from, say, um, other others. Uh, uh, Joe's comments are, are spot on. Uh, it reminds me that we also need to bear in mind uh, that our assumption that North Korea will always dictate this strategic agenda may not necessarily hold in the future. Uh, South Korea also has plans on the stocks to develop uh, a nuclear propulsion for its next generation of uh, submarines. And even if we take that at face value, it asks the question, what is the strategic end that South Korea is, is serving here? Uh, if it is more than um, what it says on, on paper and that it could actually be a stalking horse for a future nuclear capability, and after all, South Korea historically has form in this regard, uh, in the 1970s and 1980s, it had a covert uh, nuclear weapons program that was uh, ultimately discovered and, uh, and scuppered under U.S. pressure. But if we're looking at uh, potential uh, next proliferators uh, on a global scale, South Korea is an obvious candidate um, for the obvious reason that it faces a nuclear rival to, its, uh, uh, to the north. Uh, and increasing doubt about the credibility of the United States to um, fulfill its extended nuclear guarantees and in a tough neighborhood with China um, on one side and um, non-nuclear Japan on, on the other. If there's a change of administration to a conservative uh, government in South Korea, uh, we could find that actually we're looking more at what South Korea does uh, uh, than North Korea does in, in future. It has the industrial capacity, it has the technical means, it has the deep financial pockets to be able to fund that kind of development at relatively short notice. Well, thank you both for your insights on this topic and we look forward to following your research and publications throughout the year um, for more information. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure being on. Thank you, Mayor. It's a great pleasure being on as well. And thank you all for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Our next episode will be released on the 25th of February and will cover the 2021 Military Balance book launch. So be sure to tune in to hear insights into this year's key findings from our authors. 
please do follow, rate, and subscribe to Sound Strategic wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts to keep up to date with all the latest episodes. And for more in-depth analysis of the key international security and defense issues from around the world, be sure to follow the IISS on Twitter, LinkedIn, or visit the IISS website. Thank you and see you next time.